This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. From MPB, this is Think Radio. <laughs> From MPB, this is Think Radio. That's funny. Uh, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. I'm Java Chapman here with you, filling in for Kevin Farrell today, along with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Science. Uh, this morning, we have some great guests and a wonderful topic that we're going to dive into with George Phillips, our favorite paleontologist, also Luke Pearson, biologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Recently, they um, collaborated on a new discovery found in Mississippi water. So we're going to talk about that. But as always, if you have any pet questions, um, you can join the conversation and also tell us about your latest brushes with nature. Email animals at mpbonline.org. Also, we have the brand new Talk to Us feature inside the MPB Public Media app, and we appreciate you who have been using it. So um, send us a note that way, and we will help you out this morning. Also, don't forget, if you happen to miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. How are you doing today? Good morning. I'm doing great. You know, we always like to start off with you and uh, some of your recent observations. So what's going on in your world? You know, something that I'm seeing a lot of, and I think probably everybody is, um, the baby frogs and toads have hatched. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, they were little, been little um, tadpoles for a while now, and... If you've got, you don't even you don't even have to be really really close to water for these guys start fanning out and they'll you know as they hatch from the um, ponds and creeks and backwaters they um, instinctively go to higher ground and start going around. So I've got little smaller than your thumbnail toads. All over the place, and you can. I've kind of tracked them the last few days. I saw them just when they were tiny, tiny, right along the edge of the pond, and now they're all the way back up in the woods. And I, you know, have a fear that I'm stepping on some of them because they're so <laughs> little and they seem so new to the world. And um, I realized that thousands and thousands of frog eggs get laid or toad eggs or whatever and they all almost all of them have to go to water to lay their eggs i think all in mississippi do and so um you know out of these millions even of eggs that's great food in the water so a lot of things are eating it for you know fish are having fun they're, they've got to get their babies ready so they're eating frog eggs so but finally they hatch into tadpoles and again things feast on them a lot mm-hmm. of birds are going to eat tadpoles all kinds of stuff uh, <clears throat> they, they look like a, a nice little juicy bite really when you look <laughs> at a tadpole and you a think about morsel yeah we, i think about that when the blue heron goes down there oh she's probably just crazy about those um bullfrog tadpoles you know they're a good size but anyway so then they get decimated even more as tadpoles but enough of them 
grow those legs and get rid of the tail and emerge from the water and start up the hill. But then, I mean, think how great they are for birds. Everything, all the the, the ground feeders are out there, and they're, I'm sure they're dodging. Uh, there are snakes, and there are baby snakes that are small enough that that's just perfect for them to find a little toad. Luke, I'm, keep looking at Luke, and he yeah, keeps shaking his, he's shaking his head. I'm not this saying is... anything false yet. When he shakes his head, <laughs> no, we'll give him the mic. Yeah, yeah this but, is right over his alley. So anyway, they're everywhere, and it's, it's fun to find. And, and what I have found... I know as a child I used to find them. That was always fun. And anytime there's a kid on our property, which happened a couple of times recently, they're just keyed into them. You know, like, yeah. oh, here's this tiny little thing moving in the grass. It's a tiny little frog. <laughs> and I do let them pick them up and hold them for a little while and put them back. But anyway, that's a fun thing going on. And then, of course, there are baby birds. I've had wrens in the cactus in the front. My aloe looks pretty awful because the wrens have been in there. They've got a little cave of moss built and the babies came out the other day. Uh, I I was watching the Perula nest. I think we talked about that. Out of the three eggs, two have hatched and um, I feel sure the last one's abandoned because it's been several days since the other two left and I hope that they're doing well okay so lots of babies at the feeders and then there's also um of course insects everywhere so lots of fun things to get your kids outside and look at and pretty much you know nothing's going to really hurt you much out there it's it's as lots of you, fun things for them to see. Yeah, except yeah. The mosquitoes. Yeah. The mosquitoes are the real problem. You're right. Mosquitoes, and I've already had a couple cases of chiggers. That's just mm-hmm. my least favorite thing in the woods. I think. Yeah, summertime in Mississippi is always fun. Um, I. It's funny. I, one of my favorite things about Creature Comforts is just that explanation of Circle of Life. Like you started off with mm-hmm. that all of these new te- uh, frogs and things, toads were being born, but they are basically food, you know, along every part of the cycle, food for another part of the cycle. As in, you know, with the insects and the and the bugs and the fishes and the birds, it's it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. All this eating each other and predation is, it's all planned into the cycle. There you That's go. That's why you have a lot of excess. You know, we're the... The brainy, our big brains get in there and kind of throw things off a little, and that's the we, the we're the fly in the ointment, I guess, of the system. That's everything's worked out. So um, we were we were teasing about that, I think, earlier, is that people just get out there and mess up whatever they're up to. Yeah, the system was already in place, and then we like, hey, let's insert ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How to be observers and, and watch what's going on and kind of keep a low impact is, is, I think, the ideal way to do it. Yeah. Dr. Major, how are you doing this morning? How are things at the clinic, sir? We're doing good. Uh, hope you all all survived the electrical outlet outages. Yes, uh, sir. Yeah. yeah. I just got power in my house yesterday. Right, and of course, uh, because of that, there's been some some instances we've we've uh, taken in quite a few animals that where people didn't have electricity in the house. But there have been some deaths actually uh, by deaths, I'm saying pet deaths from uh, overheating. Uh, and these houses, your house can get quite hot, and depending on the breed, uh, some of the dogs just can't stand uh, excessive temperatures. They've got to be well hydrated, just like we do. 
and certainly that's uh, has been a stress on everybody because of the widespread outages that we had. A couple of things that I've seen uh, in my backyard. I had a. Uh, I don't think it was a suicide, but there was a beautiful ruby-throated hummingbird that got its beak hung in the uh, screen porch, and uh, we didn't find him until he was. Uh, desiccated almost beautiful his feathers are still beautiful and everything but I think during the storm what was that Thursday uh, that he may have been blown into it but I've never seen a, a hummingbird that was it just his beak got in and he couldn't get out uh, but beautiful, beautiful hummingbird. I've saved him. Yeah, we, we were lucky enough that we were sitting right on the porch Troy when that happened and uh, it was you know two hummingbirds expressing their territorial feelings i guess and one went right into the screen and that that there was an inch of his beak on the other side and paul just went and pushed it through back through with his hand and the little thing flew away but i thought wow it it wouldn't have taken long for him to die right there if we hadn't been there right well this one we didn't find until after the fact i think it was saturday Actually, when we found him, but uh, it was pretty sad because oh. they're so so beautiful, and we've got quite a few, I guess, resident hummingbirds around around the house. We're keeping our feeders out, and uh, they they're pretty. What should I say? They're beautiful to watch, and they're they're awesome. Uh, the other thing I saw on Facebook, which I don't look at Facebook much, I just uh, have to turn to it. And there was a beautiful pink bush Katie did. Uh, picture on that, and they had taken the picture, yeah. and it was it was beautiful. And then somebody else posted a pink dragonfly. So there's all kind of things in nature that if we're observant enough, a lot of times we might miss it. But if you if you look, it's there. A lot of things are there that we may not see always. I had an almost. I'm just here. I'm talking about my yard, mm-hmm. but it had an almost perfect. I call them fairy rings. But it was probably about 40 feet in diameter. Oh. It, it uh, the mushroom mushrooms, and uh, they uh, weren't complete because part of it went to the uh, wooded area. But uh, it was kind of a repeat of last year, except it was bigger. And those those are beautiful to see. Those very symmetrical. Uh, the mycelia, for some reason, know what to do. And uh, it's, uh, I call it a fairy ring, but obviously, I don't think I've got any fairies there, but I may have. <laughs> that's what we that. always call them. Yeah, They're that's, just magical to spot one. I think we all right. call them that, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's just an example of things that you can see um, Dr. Troy and um, Libby just um, let everyone know. Just being observant is uh, one way to enjoy enjoy nature, um, even if you don't want to get down and dirty um, like uh, Luke and George recently did. <laughs> uh, they were very observant, and um, they have a new discovery that we're going to talk about. But before we get to that first break and bring our guests into the conversation, let's uh, go to the phone lines. We have Fletch from Madison uh, wants to piggyback off of what Libby was talking about, uh, toads and tadpoles. Good morning, Fletch. Good morning. Libby, if you could, i got several questions, if you could uh, clarify for me. Okay. So toads, you're calling the, the land frog, right? 
Yeah, and that's it. I'm glad you said frog. They're all frogs, and some of them we call toads, which is a common name. And um, there's they're even within the toads. What really the the narrow mouths are not true toads, right? Yeah, and, some um, narrow mouths aren't true toads. They're frogs, but it's toads are just a general classification of frogs. They're warty. They generally are terrestrial. They have shorter legs, and they, they hop rather than, like, leap. Yeah, and they can be in drier okay. places just yes. because they don't okay. – their skin is a little bit tougher. Yes. So are, are, are both, say, bullfrog and these toad eggs initially laid in the water? Yes, yes. And that's something that I think okay. some people don't understand, which is why I mentioned it, is those toads that are very terrestrial – uh, they do go back to water. They have to. The, the female has to go back to lay those eggs, and the male goes back to fertilize them. So they'll be in the pond or close to the pond doing their mating songs, just like the frogs. And, you know, some of the frogs are very, very much aquatic and rarely leave water. But um, the toads get right in there with them when they have to lay their eggs. And many species will lay egg masses in that same body of water. Good deal, good deal. My, my son and I were playing golf the other day, and he saw one of those little thumbnail toads. And he's like, wait a minute. I saw some tadpoles the other day the size of my thumb. And now here's the look like mature toad without, you know, tadpole yeah. form. Mm-hmm. Smaller than that. Yeah. And I, said, I, I think it's because they were the, the terrestrial type. Yeah, they were different species. And uh, like the little tree frogs. Uh, their tadpole is going to be smaller, and, the, and when they first hatch, they're going to be tiny, too. But the toads are just, I don't know, they're the most precious little ones when they hatch. A uh, bullfrog is pretty big. That tadpole is pretty big, and it comes ashore pretty big. Good deal. Thank you, Thank you. Now, I just said we have George Phillips and Luke Pearson here today, and they're going to tell us about this new discovery that they found in uh, some Mississippi waters. And um, first, I'll start with you, George. I always call you our favorite paleontologist, (laughs) but give me your official title. I'm the paleontology curator. That is, I am the caretaker of the state fossil collection. I do uh, mostly do research, but I do a lot of outreach, too. We just uh, had the uh, North Mississippi Fossil Roadshow recently, earlier this month, which was a big hit. And then I'm, as Libby mentioned earlier, off air, I'm often collaborating with the biologists like Luke because they're out there in the field uh, making these big discoveries. Yeah, because this, I believe this story starts with Luke, um, Luke oh, yeah. Pearson, biologist, um, with... Uh, Oh, give me your official title, Luke. I lost my paper. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm the listing and recovery biologist for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I pretty much work with aquatic turtles, but I am pretty much an aquatic ecologist. So, And we've had you on the show a number of times talking about the um, snapping turtles and all these big giant turtles that you find, you know lurking in the deep. (laughs) The fun ones. Yeah. But you are recently out on a survey. Mm -hmm. And what is what is for laymen when you go survey a waterway? What are you doing? So in this situation, we were doing surveys for freshwater mussels. So that's pretty much we it was me, uh, Matt Wagner, Ashley Rupel and Jenna King, all from Fish and Wildlife Service. And we got on a boat. We had all of our scuba diving gear, went up to a river in northeast Mississippi and 
we were going to go scuba dive, but the water was 62 degrees, and we chose not to go <laughs> scuba dive. Um, okay. So we did what we call grubbing, where you get into shallow water in a wetsuit, and you literally shove your hands into the mud, and mm-hmm. you just do like, uh, what's, what is this? What's it called? Yeah. Oh, the spear, spear fingers. fingers. Spear fingers. And you do spear <laughs> fingers uh, all up in the mud until you can find these freshwater mussels. Um, you bag them and then identify and count them later. Um, and you know, put them back where you found them. So that's we were doing a freshwater mussel survey at the time. And then you and stumbled then, upon, <laughs> and then we stumbled upon a, a what looked to be kind of like a rock, a large rock. But there aren't really many rocks in those areas. So when I went over to it, it was half out of the water, and ended up grabbing it, flipping it out of the mud, picked it up, and it was about thirty, thirty-five pounds. And it looked like a scapula, a shoulder blade or something fossil, mm-hmm. um, very large and didn't really know what it was. I, you know, I turned to one of the other people that were out there with us and I'm like, what is this? I mean, I think I know what this is, but <laughs> I just want someone else to look at this and tell me this is a really big fossil. Then about two minutes later, I get a picture you get, uh, from Matt Wagner. Yes. Oh, the power of technology. I, yes. Back in the day, it used to maybe would have been a phone call or we got to get this back to the office, but oh. you just take a picture and send it on two minutes later. In this case, George was the second person that we actually oh. did. We actually Facebook video chatted Okay, uh, James Starnes, one of the geologists. See, I'm not everybody's favorite painting. Because <laughs> we thought he might know something and then uh, it turned out he was wrong. So, <laughs> so we uh, we video chatted George, and both people were very 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 excited about it, and it turned out to be a what uh, pelvic part of a pelvic bone mm-hmm. of a Jefferson's giant sloth. The big hip bone. It's it's yeah. a large bone in anybody, but particularly the giant ground sloths. A giant ground sloth. Paint us a picture for uh, those who may not know what a giant ground sloth. I'm going to need a box of crayons. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do paint. Imagination. This is radio. Come on. (laughs) Um, So just imagine something as big as a Brahma bull. Oh, wow. But they can stand on their hind legs. Um, They can uh, shimmy up a tree. At least young ones are thought to have been able to retreat into trees in the threat of predation. Um, but the, uh, in the full-grown adults, they had these very menacing claws, which they use for defense. So you've got a, a very large creature, and we're talking specifically about uh, Jefferson's ground sloth. So the bone that uh, Luke found and Wagner found actually belongs to uh, one of three species that we know lived in Mississippi during the Ice Age, and it was the medium-sized one. So Jefferson's ground sloth uh, also was probably pretty hairy. Um, We don't know exactly how hairy. We know that many ground sloths were hairy. We have hair preserved for some. Uh, It was the Ice Age, so I'm sure they had a a certain uh, amount of hair on them. Um, They they were very menacing looking with those giant claws. I mean, these claws were enormous, you know, a, a... a claw extending from the nail bed would go nine, ten inches. I mean, these were massive claws. Imagine that. Now, giant. Now, the, what I know of a sloth that's around today, very slow. Take right, their right. Time. So that's a good question. Were these that slow? I imagine if you had these these enormous claws, and you were larger than your predator, as at least the adults were. Mm-hmm. 
then uh, that would be quite a challenge, even if you did move slow. But I imagine if under pressure, <laughs> they, <laughs> they can move, move a, a, lot, a lot quicker. Yeah. Now, now, Luke, where at, where exactly were you were you guys when you found this uh, fossil? We were up near Macon. Okay. Uh, yeah, northeast Mississippi, on a river in that area. Now, do you normally, uh, I mean, is this your first fossil that you found? <laughs> I don't remember a memorable fossil find that I've ever had in my life. So to, to go to a river and all of a sudden pick up a 35-pound giant sloth fossil was, yeah, that's like the first fossil I've ever found. I guess I'm, I, I'm asking a question because I can imagine other people out doing, you know, in nature doing things, maybe in water or um, in, some, in some mud or something. And what made you be like, this is something I need to investigate or just move this rock out of the way? <laughs> it was just the it had a different color to it when you see it, some of these old fossils you can see that the just it's it just has a different color than what you would expect a you know a, a, a rock which we don't have rocks in mississippi not really um so it, it didn't look like a rock it didn't look like a log coming out of the water it just had this different color different texture mm. and it was just enough where i was like oh that's that's really strange. Probably an almost meaningful shape. Yes, and it had an almost meaningful. It was a very smooth, textured okay. shape, and it was like, oh, that's well, that's interesting. And I was only ten feet away from it, so I couldn't blame laziness to go and <laughs> go and go and check it out real quick. So I just yeah, flipped it over, and there it was. And 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 the shape, yeah, it's the the ilium mm-hmm. um, of a giant sloth. So it's, it looks kind of like a scapula. It's this smooth, very very smooth curved bone. And you pick that up, and you immediately know there's nothing in nature that looks like this. That that's this smooth, this curved, this this defined, this defined. It's okay. just like you look at it, and you're like, "Yes, this is a bone." I don't know how I didn't know how old it was. I didn't know what it was at the time. That's where George came in to but tell you me knew what you it had was. Something. But we all looked at it. And we're all like, "That's a fossil bone." We argued amongst ourselves what it could be before we called other people. Ashley Rupel in our group said, wow, wouldn't it be cool if that was a giant sloth bone? And we're like, that's not what it is. You don't know what you're talking about. And then George comes on the phone and she's, George is like, that's a giant sloth. You didn't need me. Ashley already had it figured out. She had it figured out. They found a couple other smaller pieces. Yep. There was um, what looks to be part of the butt bone. Mm -hmm. Uh, the ischium, and I only said that, pointed that out because I wanted to say butt live on air. Um, but uh, and, and it, it may be. So we haven't gone back there yet. The plan is to go back there yeah. this summer to see if there are more remains at that spot. And I'm sure there it does. We've, we've had reports. Uh, my mentor in geology many years ago found uh, Ice Age fossils and other fossils along that river. Uh, they're not common, but they, they do exist down there. You're listening to Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning, uh, along with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest today, paleontologist George Phillips and biologist Luke Pearson. I promised Joe and Regina we're going to get to them, so let's do that. Joe from Hancock County, good morning. What's your um, question or comment today? Um, first of all, I appreciate what y'all do. Y'all always intrigue me and teach me something, so I appreciate what y'all do there. Thank you. Um, for Libby there, um, I live on about a 30-acre farm, tree farm, in Hancock County. 
I had two uh, Jack Russell puppies and Spike and Gracie. Spike, they were both hunters. And in the backyard, Spike spotted a toad. And I said, Spike, don't do it. Don't do it. And uh, it's like telling a child not to touch the hot burner. <laughs> They're going to do it. They're going to do it. Anyway, Spike, he grabbed hold of it. Well, he spit it out and salivated for 30 minutes. But um, what is that toxin? Uh, there is a toxin. <clears throat> I don't know if I, I don't. I can't tell you the scientific name, although we probably had to answer Jumping that on Luke. a test, didn't we? <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. Lucas scratching his head too. You you stumped us. But uh, there is a toxin on the frog that and, uh, there toad. are very few. Toad. Yeah, a toad, a toad. But f- some frogs have them have the toxins as well. And it's called a bufotoxin. Bufotoxin, yes. which means a frog toxin. Yeah, yeah. so toads are, Toad. they used to be, well, they are, I guess, Bufonidae family. So they call it the bufotoxin because it's that's the family of toads that produces that kind of toxin. But yes, if a dog eats or bites or licks a toad, one of ours, uh, yeah, they will they will get sick. Generally not sick enough to die, but it depends on the size of the dog and the how toxic the toad was. So that was a little dog. Did he get sick? Uh, Spike was, uh, he got up to 17 pounds, and uh, he lived 17 years, but guess what? He never, he he never touched another toad in his life. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he lived to remember it, yeah. Evidently, it's a pretty noxious feeling. And now, if Spike had been a great blue heron, I guess the same thing would happen. Won't they spit the, a toad out? Yes. So only certain animals can eat toads. Um, hognose snakes are known to eat toads. Uh, garter snakes can eat toads, but they've built up a kind of like a resistance to bufotoxin so that they can they can digest that kind of toxin without having some of the ill side effects. Well, yeah. So we're glad. I never got sick. I never, <laughs> never got sick. Go ahead. I'm sorry. But if he he may have he may have felt sick. Huh? If he, even if he didn't get <laughs> sick, yeah. <clears throat> That's a good story, and I'm glad he learned his lesson. Okay. Thank y'all very much. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that story, Joe. Uh, let's bring Dr. Troy Major in on this. Dr. Major, do you see um, any? Um, uh, animals come through the clinic that have been uh, afflicted with bufotoxins? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a learning process, and he was exactly right. Usually they learn to leave the toads alone after that initial episode. Uh, I have had one or two dogs in memory that uh, have swallowed a toad, and they can become quite uh, gastroenteritis-type sick, in other words, uh, diarrhea, vomiting and can be ill. I've never seen a dog die from that. I do understand that the cane toad, which I don't believe we have in Mississippi, there may be some somewhere down south, but those can be poisonous and can actually kill animals. And you say that's a cane toad? Yeah, that's a bad yeah, one. Cane yeah. toads. We, luckily, we don't have cane toads in Mississippi, but yes, they are extraordinarily toxic. Oh, they're wow. also I think they're in massive. Louisiana now somewhere, yeah. yeah great big. I mean, the, the first pounds. time I saw one, I thought it was a, a toy. I thought it was a ornament. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Introduced in the pet trade, I guess? Uh, yeah, probably pet trade. Um, they're very abundant in Australia. And it's causing a lot of issues in Australia. 
Oh, wow. Um, well, let's continue on the phones. Uh, Regina from Jackson uh, wants to join the conversation this morning. Uh, good morning, Regina. Oh, you know, I had tons of, uh, well, not tons, of three hummingbirds last year. And this year, <laughs> uh, they must be boycotting my, uh, my feeder or something. Surely <laughs> that's not the truth. I got a garden, I got full of flowers, and they just won't come to my feeder. What in the world am I doing wrong? Oh. And, uh, y'all, I want to ask you a question, too. Okay. All right. Go I'm ahead, so sorry that you don't have your hummingbirds in there. Are many things? Do they have a source of water close by, and have uh, has the terrain or the habitat changed drastically anywhere around your house or your yard? <clears throat> Those are, you know, some of the explanations for why they will stop going to a, a yard and a feeder that they have previously gone to. But, um, you know, it's kind of hit or miss with them. When, it always amazes me how do they find that feeder. You know, they just seem to miraculously appear in my yard and go straight to it. And, you know, I know that they, some birds have an incredible homing device. It could be that the hummingbirds remembered yours and just missed it. It could be that, uh, you know, they went to another feeder on the way to your yard and didn't ever make it over to yours. Could the El Nino influence storms be affecting them somehow? Oh, yeah, they can always affect them. You know, I, the, the explanation that I don't really want to say is that it could be that the ones that were with you last year have passed away, and so mm. they didn't come back. So that means you've got to attract some new hummingbirds to your mm. feeder. Hmm. So I hope you do keep them up and keep them clean, and hopefully you'll you'll find some new hummingbirds that'll come back, or somebody else will come. And now um, hummingbirds are having babies. I know we've had a clutch born, hmm. and uh, they've been feeding with their parents. So when as they disperse, these new hummingbirds will be looking for places, and uh, so. So Hopefully they'll find you. Don't get discouraged, Regina. Yeah. Don't get discouraged. <laughs> yeah. And are you getting um, uh, butterflies and things to your garden, to the flowers there? Oh, yeah, and uh, bees and everything in my garden. Good. Uh, the storm kind of knocked it over a little bit, my corn and stuff. But, yeah, I got flowers, and and, and they are calm, and they are the hummingbird of touch the uh, feeder and then keep going like they're just sampling and they'll just they won't come back I don't get it oh so they have been in the yard no. they're even going to your flowers hmm that's interesting but you've probably got such pretty flowers and they're so productive with nectar that they don't need your they don't need, need your feeder. hummingbird <laughs> feeder yeah <laughs> yeah but it's every once in a while I want them to I like them I want them to you know I know I keep it clean Mm-hmm. I want I want them there. Yeah, I understand your feeling because you can see them so much better. They they stay a little longer, and uh, you can observe them better when they're on a feeder. Thank you very much. And hey, and thank you. I'm tr- I'm gonna get these hummingbirds over here. I had to go grab them out of the sky. Yeah, just just don't get discouraged. Don't Nature's get discouraged. so uncooperative. Yeah. 
That's funny. That's funny. We're um, <laughs> thank you, Regina. We appreciate you calling this morning. Uh, this is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. Um, sitting here with George Phillips, um, paleontologist and biologist Luke Pearson. They just made a recent discovery about a giant sloth um, found here. Is this the first giant sloth fossil from the uh, state? Well, from uh, from that uh, river system. Okay. Uh, well, at least from that river. Yes. I guess it made it easier to identify like we were mm-hmm. known to have giant sloths here. We have a reproduction skeleton that was uh, that's from Illinois that was uh, installed when the new museum was built or just soon thereafter. And we often use that for reference. Um, we have accumulated enough sloth bones over the years. We might be able to build our own skeleton with our own material. But, um, yeah, so we it's it's nice to add a new data point. Always, and we did not have an ilium. Okay, so that that was nice too. And the one on the um, our sculpt the the on our reproduction is uh, sculpted. It's uh, it's not even a cast. It's sculpted the ilium on both ilia. Uh, so now we have an actual uh, uh, ilium of a sloth. So that's a new addition in that regard for sure. Now, before we take our next break, um, give us a few tips for the amateur paleontologists out there who may be digging around uh you just we were talking off mic that uh some people came in you know just a few days ago and brought you some things that they found um what are some tips for someone to um you know look for certain designations or certain things to know if they found a fossil or like i say it's just a a rock (laughs) well if you have any suspect items that you've already picked up uh, you can uh, contact us at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, uh, and we have an annual show, first Saturday of every March, uh, where we invite people to bring them in, the Fossil Road Show. Uh, people bring in fossils to have them identified. But if you're wanting to go out and find places, I guess it's becoming part of um, organizations like the Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society or the North Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society. And if you're next door in Alabama, they have a couple of clubs, too. But there are these uh, civic organizations that encourage uh, community-based uh, activities and outreach. And uh, both of our Mississippi clubs, the North Mississippi Club and the Jackson Original Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society. There's a coastal group, but sadly I don't work with them much. Uh, I don't know that much about them. But uh, working with those communities, uh, contact reaching out to them on Facebook, that's a great way to start, or reaching out to the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science Facebook page is another way. If you want to uh, get uh, pictures, photos uh, sent to me, that's one way. There are multiple ways to reach me. But uh, connecting with those groups uh, is the best way to learn how learn those methods. And uh, our volunteers at the museum uh, have a special opportunity on occasion to learn how to look for fossils when they help us in our research outings. Do you guys still do the um, fossil expeditions um, on the sandbars, the river sandbars? We do on occasion. Uh, uh, there were... Um, certain areas that we focused on when I first came on board some 20 years ago, but now we're all over the state with social media, uh, myself and the Mississippi Office of Geology, we're, we're all over the state and there's just not enough professionals to uh, you know, deal with the demand from the public. Everybody is collecting fossils these days. <laughs> Everybody loves to do it. It's a great pastime. It really picked up during the COVID crisis. 
Uh, people are out there finding things. And um, most people want to know what it is. Uh, and they, there's some amazing things found uh, and that we've been slowly documenting. I cannot, I don't have enough time in the day to publish on, or nor does the Office of Geology to publish on all these amazing discoveries. Uh, it's just, you know, I'm working on several projects right now. I've got one due on Ice Age turtles in <laughs> September, yet I keep having all these things get uh, in front of me and, you know, keeping me from trying to get everything done in a timely fashion. It's more than one paleontologist can handle. So it's safe to say you could maybe use some uh, uh, some well-qualified volunteers. Yes, it takes a long time to train them, though. And that's why I encourage um, interaction and uh, involvement in these groups, these amateur groups. Most people want to do it on Facebook. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a lot of misinformation on Facebook and you have to wade. It's just like Internet. It's just like Internet. You have to wade through a lot of bad information. You have to wade through personalities and attitudes. It's really best to get involved in a museum or some kind of civic group, uh, museum activities in civic groups. Uh, and I highly recommend if you're in the Jackson Metro area to get involved with the Mississippi Gem and Mineral Society. We have a long-standing relationship with the Gem and Mineral Society. And uh, the existence of the paleontology program at the Museum of Natural Science is in large part due to this wonderful person across the table from me, uh, Libby Hartfield, uh, her educational staff at the time and the researchers, um, but working with the Gem and Mineral Society. Our first, the first state fossil collection consisted of material from, that was donated by the Gem and Mineral Society to the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, including a very important uh, small whale called Ziggy, who Ziggy. eventually became our state <laughs> fossil. And it was the campaign for this small whale, Ziggy, to be our state fossil that sort of led up to the creation of the paleontology program and the state fossil collection at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. So if you have an inkling about uh, paleontology and you want to get get involved, it's very easy. Get involved with one of these gem and mineral societies or just contact the museum. Um, George Phillips, he just let you know there's plenty of work to be done. <laughs> oh, gosh. So How is get, there? So get involved. This is Creature Comforts here on MPB Think Radio. I'm Java Chapman filling in for Kevin Farrell this morning here with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. We've been having a great time with our guests, paleontologist George Phillips and biologist Luke Pearson. Now, Luke, um, normally when we have you in here, we're talking about uh, some of the turtles and um, large creatures that you <laughs> that you uh, interact with. Tell us, uh, tell us about some of the work that you do um, in the um, Pascagoula River system. Oh, in the Pascagoula. Okay. Um, let's see. So recently, we uh, Emily Field, the new Mississippi state herpetologist at the museum, and I went down to uh, some of the Oxbow Lakes off the Pascagoula River that I've been to like nine times now and did some alligator snapping turtle trapping to try to see if we can recapture some of these turtles that were marked in 2017, 2018, 2019, see how they're growing, what their survival is, that kind of stuff. Um, we did that a couple of weeks back, and we managed to catch three or four alligator snapping turtles that were caught three, four, five years ago. Which was the biggest? The biggest. That lake doesn't have 
super large not turtles. The, not the giants. Not the giants, okay. <laughs> but uh, let's see, 65, 60, that's 68 still, pounds. It's still pretty big. Now. It's pretty big still. It's a big turtle for anybody, but it's not the giants. Yeah. You yeah. wouldn't want to get your arm, you know. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> Put out there. Real quick, um, talk about um, what these these uh, alligator snapper turtles eat, because I, just, I think the way they hunt is so interesting. If you can call it hunting, um, you know, they just kind of sit there with their mouth open. <laughs> yeah, so they do a couple different ways of, of hunting, I guess, as they age. Uh, generally, they're considered an ambush predator. So they oh, wow. sit there on the bottom. They don't move a lot and open their mouth. They have a tongue lure called a lingual lure. Uh, it's multicolored. It can be white, can be gray, can be bright pink, red. And they sit there and just wiggle it around. <laughs> and they hope that a fish comes by or a crayfish, sometimes another turtle, will come by, see that, and say, oh, that's that's a worm, or that's a caddisfly larvae, or that's a aquatic insect. That's free food. And when that animal tries to bite that lure, alligator snapper turtle's there, <laughs> and they will crush whatever they bite. And to think about that they can eat other turtles, oh, yes. that's a lot of power <laughs> crunching down on that shell. Yes, <laughs> and it's it's interesting because... They do eat other turtles, but of the alligator snapping turtles in the southeast, ours, the ones that are in Mississippi and uh, and Louisiana and Arkansas, those are considered the slender-headed alligator snapping <laughs> hmm. turtles. They're the ones that have the slightly smaller head hmm. than the ones out in the Apalachicola River or uh, the Suwannee River in Florida. Those guys have huge hmm. bulldog heads. Wow. They are like shell crushers. Whoa. Um, George, not to put you on the spot, but anything way back in the day, have we found any fossils of, I don't know, alligator snapping turtles or something? We have. Okay. We have them from the Ice Age of Mississippi. That's really our oldest freshwater deposits preserved that that preserve uh, good aquatic fossils, uh, at least aquatic vertebrates. Um, We've got alligator. We've got snapping turtle. We've got over a dozen different uh, species of turtle preserved in our uh, Ice Age fossil record. And uh, and not all of it's been published, and that's that's why I'm going to be producing something uh, in September, uh, if I meet the deadline. Um, we've got uh, turtles that no longer occur in Mississippi, like the um, cool-temperate turtles of the Great Lakes in New England, the wood turtle and the Blandings turtle. And we also have tortoises. Now, real quick, before we run out of time, tell us about this new exhibit that is at the museum that's just stirring a lot of buzz right now. Permian Monsters. Permian uh, Monsters. Yes. I was, as I said earlier, I, I might have been against this exhibit because we have no Permian in Mississippi. But it's such a fantastic exhibit. You're seeing creatures unlike anything you've ever seen in any of our traveling exhibits or that are on currently currently on display. These are animals that existed not just before the dinosaurs, as we've pointed out during the breaks, but these are animals that existed before frogs, before toads. These are animals that existed before alligators. Who knew such <laughs> lizards thing and snakes? This is all before them. There were creatures, uh, Mother Nature was really experimenting in the Pennsylvanian and the Permian. Uh, uh, salamanders, salamander like creatures, at least. Uh, over a meter long with large arrowhead-shaped heads. <laughs> um, the names of these creatures 
are going to be completely unfamiliar to most people, except the four to eight year old kids might be familiar with Dimetrodon. <laughs> okay, often confused for a dinosaur by adults. Um, but it doesn't stop at Dimetrodon. Uh, Dimetrodon is in this group called the Polycosaurs. And there are so many different types of Polycosaurs. Um, there were carnivorous Polycosaurs. There were herbivorous Polycosaurs. Uh, Dimetrodon had large saber-like teeth, so it was a carnivore. But then there's a Daphosaurus that had teeth that were modified for plant-eating. Uh, there was this. There were mammal-like reptiles this was before the mammals. But there was these animals that had uh, adaptations that were very mammal-like. Uh, and one group of them, the uh, therapsids, eventually led up, uh, evolved into mammals. And this exhibit but, is now at the museum, I'm, and it's included in the normal price. Up to the, yes, absolutely, up to the new year. But I suggest you come see it multiple times. Because you got to learn all these names. <laughs> it's something new, <laughs> something new. Per, uh, I I can't even say it. Permian. Permian, yeah. Permian monsters. So many of them are new to me. I had to take a course in it like over a day just online just to learn about it. So if you're looking for something uh, to do in the air condition during this Mississippi summer, (laughs) go to the museum and go see this brand new exhibit. George, Luke, appreciate you for being here this morning and for all the work that you do. Um, This is Creature Comforts, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Stink Radio. Um, Today, our call screener was Jason Klein. Our board engineer was Liz Gill. For Dr. Major Libby Hartfield, our guest George Phillips, Luke Pearson of Java Chapman. Up next, is autocorrect you're listening to mpb think this is an mpb think radio podcast to hear previous shows visit mpbonline.org or download the mpb public radio app to listen on your iphone or android phone on demand